Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, do me a favor and open it to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. Zechariah chapter 3. While you're turning there, I wanted to tell you about a few interesting conversations I've had over the last few weeks. My friend John is a Christian, and he wants to serve God. He wants to obey God, and he's got great ideas for how he might be used by God for God's glory. But John's constantly paralyzed by his past sin and wrongdoing, and he wonders sometimes if he could be any use to God at all with a past like his. Barbara isn't a Christian. She just wants to live a comfortable life. And yet she's constantly petrified with fear about what other people think about her and the way they think about how she lives her life. Dan has been trying to get control of his anger, but growth is a lot slower than he wants it to be. And sometimes he wonders all the pain that he's causing to the people around him. It would be better if he just stopped living altogether. Now, all of those people, true stories of people I know, they all have complicated, multifaceted problems. But at one level or another, all of them are dealing with shame. Shame is a feeling of worthlessness or or a demeaned state because of something that we've done or something that's been done to us. And the world talks a lot about shame today. And the world has a common solution to shame that's called self-esteem that goes something along the lines of when you take just a better look at yourself, you realize that you're not all that bad and that there's really more good in you than bad. And so you should really just focus on the good parts about yourself. And then your shame will start to go away. And while there might be a place for some of that in a lot of our lives, The Bible has a radically different solution for our shame and our guilt, where instead of looking in at ourselves and raising our self-esteem, the Bible invites us to look up to God and raise our God-esteem. Because when we look at God, he changes the way we look at ourselves. So the main idea that I want to drive home to you today is that Jesus has a plan to free you from shame and guilt. We don't believe it's an accident that any of you are here this morning. We believe that you're here because God wanted to receive your praise and worship and God wanted to tell you that he has a plan to free you from shame and Guilt. And that plan is revealed to us in Zechariah chapter 3, where we find a beautiful, stunning story about God holding court. And this story is going to unfold for us in the form of two problems and their solutions. So as we walk through this passage of Scripture, we're going to see two problems that the text presents, and then two solutions that the text presents for those problems. Problems. So read with me in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. 
Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Now, there's a lot of details in that story. Before we get into it, let me just give you a brief peek at the context that this book was written in. Zechariah was a prophet who spoke to God's people in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel after they had returned from exile in the Babylonian Empire. The Old Testament builds up a story of God choosing a people for himself, those people consistently being redeemed by God, but rejecting him and rejecting his ways and choosing to walk in their own sinful ways. Their sin ultimately reaches culmination where God sends them out of the promised land and ships them off to a foreign nation where they live in exile for many years. But then eventually, because God is faithful to his promises, he calls the people back to the promised land. He calls them back to the nation of Israel. But the things in the nation of Israel weren't quite like they were when the Israelites left. The temple wasn't as impressive. The sacrificial system was, was barely even functioning at times. The people had married foreign wives and, and, and husbands, and so many uh, of their traditions and customs were being lost. And the Israelites, looking at their culture in shambles, would have felt shame and guilt because they knew that it was their sins and the sins of their ancestors that brought them to this point. And so Zechariah shares this story with us to, to reveal God's plan to free Israel and to free you from your shame and guilt. So the first problem, two problems and their solutions, the first problem is an accusation. And in this problem, we see that we are far worse than we ever dared to believe. So read with me again, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. In the Old Testament, priests represented the people before God. They, they prayed to God on behalf of the people. They partook in sacrifices and other religious customs on behalf of the people. When God looked at the priest, he saw all of his people. And we, continue, we keep reading. So Joshua standing before me, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now notice here, this is some courtroom language. God is a judge. Satan is a prosecuting attorney, and he is bringing a charge. He is bringing an accusation against God's people. And this is not merely a charge against Joshua as an individual, but rather because Joshua is a priest representing the people, Satan's charge is a charge, an accusation against all of God's people. 
Satan has a reputation as a liar, but oftentimes he knows that the truth can be more painful. When we take an honest look at ourselves, we know that we've all done things that are worthy of an accusation. We've all done wrong. We've all harmed other people. We've all chosen our own preferences over the needs and preferences of others, and that's called selfishness. We've all thought more highly of ourselves than we ought to, and that's pride. We've all bent the truth so that we don't look quite as bad, and that's called a lie. When we take an honest look at ourselves, we know that we've all done wrong. We all have reason to be accused because our most basic issue isn't that we have a self-image problem. Our most basic issue is that we are stained with sin. When we look at the bottom of all of the issues going on in our lives, we see that at the bottom of it isn't something that others have done to us, but something that we have done against God. We are all stained with sin. The New Testament puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All of us are included in that category. All people in all nations around the world today are included in that category. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us live up to God's glory. None of us live up to what God has called and designed us to do. So we are not basically good. The Bible has a radical portrait of us as not basically good people that do bad things, but basically bad people that work out of our badness. That's not how it was made to be. We were made in God's image made to obey and reflect his glory to all of creation. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, and all of our ancestors leading up to today, including ourselves, have all sinned, have all fallen short of God's glory. We are not basically good, and therefore we can't deal with our shame and our guilt by looking in at ourselves and raising our self-esteem. There has to be a deeper foundation because when we look at ourselves, we know that we all have a reason to feel ashamed. We know that we all have a reason to feel guilty. And so if we can't look in at ourselves, we need to look somewhere else. And thankfully, God has a solution to this accusation and it leads to the solution to this first problem, which is an acquittal and not guilty verdict. You are indeed this morning far worse than you ever dared to imagine, but you can be more forgiven than you ever dared to believe. Amen. So let's read together verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, on your behalf, church, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. God is saying to Satan that this accusation against his people is out of line in his courtroom. Why? On what grounds? It's not because it isn't true. If it wasn't true, if God's people had no reason to, for, for, to have an accusation levied against them, they wouldn't have gone into exile. If this was true, Verses like Romans 3.23 wouldn't be in our Bibles. So God's saying this accusation is out of line, not because it isn't true, but because of something even deeper. Let's keep reading. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Why? The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? 
God has plucked his people from the fire. God has saved his people from the brink of his own judgment. God has wooed his people, drawn his people away from the destruction that our sin will ultimately cause. God's people are not off the hook because they are good enough. God's people are pardoned because they're chosen. It has nothing to do with something that we have done, and it has everything to do with what God has done. We cannot be forgiven by doing enough good to make up for the bad. We cannot be forgiven by being religious enough that maybe God will ignore our bad. We cannot be forgiven by anything that we do, but rather we can be forgiven because of something that God has declared. And the New Testament calls this justification, that beautiful doctrine that God has declared us to be not guilty, but righteous instead. Not guilty, but righteous instead. And if that's true, then the starting point of Christianity is not to fix ourselves, but rather to admit that we are broken beyond repair. So how does God do this? How does God declare us to be not guilty but righteous instead? Is he ignoring our sin? Is he creating a legal fiction? Is he sweeping our sin under the rug of the universe? Well, no. The New Testament reveals the solution to us. In John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, this famous verse For God so loved the world. How did God love the world? This is how God loved the world. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a universal need. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all need God's forgiveness. We all need God's pardon. But there's only a limited solution. Jesus does not save everyone. Jesus does not forgive everyone. But rather, the only people that are saved are whoever believes in him, in verse 16. This forgiveness is only received by believing in Jesus. And why is that? Well, we could keep reading. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. That's because we did a perfectly fine job of that on our own. We didn't need God to condemn the world because our sin and our wrongdoing spoke for itself. But verse 18, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is only one way to know God. There is only one way to move from being a sinful enemy of God to a counted righteous in Christ friend of God, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's because Jesus lived the only life that has ever been free from any reason or cause for shame and guilt in himself. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never wronged anyone. Jesus always counted the interests of others as more important than his own needs and wants. He lived a perfect life that we could not live. And then Jesus died a death, a painful, humiliating, shameful death 
on the cross. And he was punished not only by the Roman and Jewish authorities, he was punished by God. Not for his own crimes, because he didn't have any, but rather he was punished in a shameful way for our guilt. He was punished for our shame and guilt. And then he rose again from the dead. And God rose him from the dead to declare to the world that he was innocent and that his sacrifice was acceptable on behalf of anyone that would trust him throughout history, including us today. Jesus is alive today and he is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your praise. We can believe and trust in King Jesus. We read earlier about Joshua, the high priest, standing before God, representing God's people to God. Jesus is our true and better high priest, like we just read about in Hebrews. Jesus is our high priest. He represents us before God. The Bible says that when we believe in Jesus, we're united to him, so that everything good that he's done is credited to our account. Everything that he has is ours. Every relationship that he has is ours not because of goodness in us, but because of our union with Christ. Jesus is our true and better high priest. Church, Jesus has a plan to deal with your shame and guilt by acknowledging your brokenness and, and guilt and by giving his life to fix it. Amen. Jesus has a plan to deal with your shame and guilt by acknowledging your brokenness and then taking it on himself giving his life to fix it. Mm. So our first problem is an accusation, a truthful, hard accusation, but it's solved by God's glorious acquittal that those who trust in Jesus are not guilty, but righteous instead. Mm. Is that true of you today? Have you trusted in Jesus? But that leads us to another problem, a contamination. We need God's forgiveness and we need his help because we actually are sinful. So read with me in verse 3. Now Joshua, remember the high priest representing God's people, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. This isn't just dirty laundry. This is a sign of Joshua's uncleanness. And as a representative of God's people, this is a sign of all of God's people's uncleanness. They are not spiritually or morally fit to be in God's presence. They are not fit to be God's friend. God's people in the Old Testament returned from exile really are sinful. And we, gathering here today as Pillar Church, forgiven and purchased by the blood of the Lamb, really actually are sinful. And so maybe you live with this dissonance that you know in your head that you're forgiven, but do you still feel like sin is controlling you? And you couldn't obey even though you know what's right? So since we're forgiven... Could we keep living however we want? Since God will just forgive that sin as well? By no means. God has a solution to our contamination. And that's a cleansing. Mm. See, you see, Jesus accepts us wherever we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He helps us. Come on, bro. Read verses 4 and 5 with me again. 
And as we read this, I want you to note the substitution language in this text. That that God is taking away dirty clothes and he's giving clean clothes. God is taking away the guilt of his people and, and the shame of his people and giving them purity and dignity. So read verse 4 and 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by I mentioned earlier that our shame sometimes comes from the the things that we've done. Sometimes our shame comes from our own guilt. But often our shame comes from things that have been done to us by other people. We live in a broken world that is marred with abuse and violence against people. And even nature itself sometimes seems to be our enemy. So how should we deal with shame that doesn't come from our own actions, but comes from what other people have done to us? Well, Jesus is a king, and he rules over the world, and he is coming to judge all of the evil. He is coming to make every sad thing come untrue. And, and you, in your shame from what other people have done to you, Jesus clothes you, like we read in this passage, with innocence and dignity. He deals with our shame and he deals with our guilt. Jesus hears you and he will make all things right. He is good and he sees you and he holds you and he hears you. And he loves you. He is a good, good king. But there's also the problem of our own guilt. Notice here in verse 5, where, where we see this exchange where a clean turban is placed on the head of Joshua. This is part of the priestly garments. And so as God puts this turban on Joshua's head, he's reinstating the priesthood. He's saying, I want my people to know me. I don't want them to wallow in their guilt and shame forever. I want them to have an institution that will bring them back to know me and to treasure me and to worship me and to learn about me and to love me. God is taking away our guilt and giving us purity. The New Testament puts it like this in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying work for your salvation with fear and trembling, saying, oh man, God is really like breathing down my neck. I got to get my act together. No, he's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying work from your salvation. Work out the implications of your salvation. Become what you already are. Do what your salvation has already called you to do. For it is God who works in you 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even as Christians, we are called to obey, but our obedience is not rooted in our own strength. Rather, our obedience is rooted in God's gracious work for us. He is working in you, if you're a Christian, to will, to change your desires so that you love him and love his commands and love yourself less and to work, to actually empower you to live obedient righteousness, to will and to work. Jesus has a plan to deal with your shame by acknowledging your brokenness and guilt and by wielding his power to fix it. Jesus has a plan, and that plan is not for you to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but to rest in his power to change your life. But that's not all he does for our contamination. He responds to our problem of our contamination with a cleansing, but also with a command. Jesus accepts us wherever we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He teaches us. So read verses 6 and 7. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord who commands all of the angels. If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The right of access. The right of access to God's throne room. The right to know God, to be present with God. This blessing, though, is conditional. It's for those who walk in God's ways. Look with me again at verse 7. If you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. You see, God's commands are not straitjackets to keep you from having fun. Rather, they're signposts pointing to you and saying, life is that way. True life is that way. There's joy that way. God created the world. Don't you think he knows how it works best? God created us. Don't you think he knows how it works best? God designed all of our beings and our persons and the way that we relate to one another. He knows how they work best. His commands are not straight jackets, but signposts. And God gives us the power we need to obey these commands. This obedience is not found trying harder on our own. Remember, he's cleansed us. Again, look at Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. Or Galatians puts it even stronger. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Christian life starts by grace, not by flesh, not by something we do. We don't work our way into the church and then God saves us. No, the Christian life starts by grace. God calls us and loves us and forgives us, not because of something in us, but because of something he's declared. It's all grace. It's all a gift. And then the Christian life doesn't just start by grace. It continues by grace. And finally, it will be completed one day by God's Grace, if you want to be more like Jesus in 2020, you won't do it by trying harder. You'll do it by rooting yourself in God's word and yielding yourself to God's spirit and depending on God's spirit for God's help. 
the Christian life starts, continues, and will be completed by grace. Jesus has a plan to deal with your shame and guilt by teaching you to live in an honorable way and then empowering you to actually do it. Jesus has a plan to free you from shame and guilt. He took it on himself. He died the most humiliating and shameful death known in his day. He knows the pain of betrayal. He knows the pain of public humiliation. And he also knows the weight of your sin because he took it on himself out of love. So if you are a Christian, look to Jesus. Continue to trust in Jesus. Because the grace that God has given you is not a permission to sin. It's not a license. God wants to purify you. So obey him in the strength that he gives. That's how we respond to Jesus' plan to free us from our shame and guilt. And maybe you haven't trusted Jesus yet. Maybe you trust in another God. Maybe you believe that your own goodness, whether religious or spiritual or moral or, or otherwise, is good enough. Maybe you haven't really thought of it. Maybe you think that God is just kind of indifferent and he'll just forgive because it's what he does. No, it's not true. And the shame and the guilt that you feel today has a resolution. It's not found inside of yourself. It's not found in people around you. It's found in a God who rules above you. So look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He is alive. He is ruling over every inch of our globe. So trust him. He is good, like we just sang. He knows your weariness. He knows your anxiety. Jesus knows and loves you at your worst. He knows everything about you, the secrets that you think you can keep. Jesus knows. He knows. And he loves you despite your worst. Jesus knows and loves you at your worst. And he is ready to save you from it. Because he's good. He's good. If you have any questions about what it means to trust in Jesus, please feel free to ask me or or Thomas or, or any of the members of Pillar Church that are sitting around you today. There's nothing we would rather do than talk to you about this. And if you are a Christian and you feel plagued by a sin that, that you have not confessed or maybe a sin that you have already confessed, if you need prayer today to kill that sin by God's grace in 2020, then, then I'd be happy to pray with you as will any of the members of Pillar Church sitting around you today. And the reason we pray to slay sin is because we can't do it on our own. That's right. So let's pray to that end right now. Father God, we thank you for your grace.
grace to us. We thank you for your power over us. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be saved from sin and condemnation, not in ourselves, but by a better way, in your Son. And so I pray, Father God, that that the members of Pillar Church would be unified and built up to trust your Son. I pray that we would be rooted not in our own confidence, that you would empty us of ourselves, that you would teach us that we have no good apart from you, that you would teach us that we need you for everything. We need you for every act of obedience. We need you for every act of love. We need you just to know you. And so, Father, I pray that you would forgive us of our sins. And Father God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would that you would steal their sleep away, that you would haunt them until they find rest in your Son, because it's found nowhere else. Father God, I pray that you would, through your word today, save souls, and that we would celebrate their conversion together in the coming weeks and days. We are so grateful for your kindness to us. We pray that you would build up your church by your word in 2020. And it's for your name we pray. 